Hello, everyone. This is Gerard Robinson. Welcome back to another session of The Learning Curve. Coming to you from beautiful Charlottesville, Virginia, where it is sunny, a little humid, but I think, Kara, I think in Boston, or the oh Boston gosh. area, you guys are getting really, really hot and humid weather. I am melting. Like, <laughs> and I just think what's really, really cruel is that um, this past weekend, I took my first trip. I think I might have told you I was going to do this. I went to visit my brother, who I haven't seen in a very, very long time. I went by myself, Gerard, with, without my beautiful family, which I missed them really a whole lot, wink, wink. Two days by myself was terrible. Um, <laughs> but I was in Laguna Beach, California. So you're Ooh. from California. To, oh, my goodness. So not only is it just, like, beautiful, I feel like it's la-la land. Like, real people can't yes. really live there. Um, but, it like, the weather was just perfect. And my brother kept saying, yeah, well, that's why I moved here because it's perfect every day. I was like, I, and I have like such a sour personality, I guess. I was like, well, you can't appreciate it. If it's like, like I'm, I'm like now just a terrible, like hearty new Englander. I'm like, well, you only deserve sun a few days of the year. So it was, um, but it was beautiful. And here we are in Boston and I'm melting and my office is on a third floor where the air conditioning doesn't quite reach. So it's misery. Yeah, I've got a couple of friends uh, who are sending me emails about something <clears throat> unrelated to what we're talking about, but they all mention the weather. And so when we were prepping for this, I went, yes, my co-host is melting. Well, good to know. Well, let's make sure we get through this show before you yeah. melt like uh, the <laughs> Wicked Witch and Dorothy and we will all have nothing. Comes off my eyes. Hey, Wicked Witch. <laughs> Listen. <laughs> And now, now that it's actually humid, it'd be great to see what your hair is uh, like right now. But you know, uh, you know what it's like? Exactly the same. There you go. Oh, <laughs> okay. The, the the fox looks. Got it. Oh, oh. oh. all right. I'm gonna have to give it to you because I make fun of myself for that. But yes, yeah. Doesn't move. It just doesn't move. Doesn't move. Well, speaking of not moving, uh, what is your story of the week? Oh well, what what a lovely segue. My story of the week is about the fact that our um, teacher workforce, parts of it are moving too quickly out and other parts aren't moving at all. Meaning um, we, you know, it's, I feel like we've been saying this since I like went to school um, and I won't say how long ago that was, but, but we're talking about the teacher shortage and um, you know, and, and the question is, is there a teacher shortage? And yes, there is because, uh, and this is from NBC news, by the way, um, this is because Tons and tons of teachers are retiring from the profession, yet we are not bringing in enough people to replace them. So whereas in the past, Gerard, I think when we talked about teacher shortages, we talked a lot about them in terms of happening in specific places or we, you know, more teachers want to um, teach in the and I'm using air quotes here that you can't see easier to teach places sort of a thing. Right. We would talk about that. Yep. And now here what we're talking about is just like, no, actually. Um, we need more teachers, especially now when we know we've always known that kids need more personalized attention, et cetera, et cetera. But coming off of the year that we've just had, you know, thinking really how important it is to have folks not only who know what they're doing, but can do it in a highly personalized way. Um, people are saying, hey, we are in trouble here. And, you know, this article goes into the idea that it, it's hard to pinpoint exactly why. Uh, we know why people are leaving the profession, because if you're about to take retirement, 
it's an aging profession in some ways. And so if I tell you what, if I were still teaching, um, it, this year might've been the thing that pushed me over the edge and said, it's time to retire because I'm sure it was incredibly, incredibly difficult for folks. But the other um, thing that this article locates is student debt as just an enormous factor. And we can talk about, you know, I think we, we spend a lot of time opining about how it's, it goes one way or the other, in my opinion, it's either like, we should be teachers so much money or like teaching is such a noble profession. You do it and you sacrifice, right? It shouldn't have to be either of those things. And so if you're somebody, a young person thinking about going into the profession, but going into the profession means going to a school where you're going to incur a lot of student debt and coming out on the other side of that, you don't see a way to pay that debt, then you might make a very different choice. And that's just one of the reasons we could talk forever about school culture and the demands of teaching, what it means to be an excellent teacher, et cetera. But I think that that student debt one is really important. Um, and this also goes on to talk about, you know, uh, President Biden's plan. President Biden, in, as part of the American, Rest, American Families Plan, is talking about this $9 million on recruiting, developing, and retaining excellent teachers. He wants to focus on diversifying the teacher workforce. And there are some good ideas for doing that, as in focusing on community organizations that can train teachers, um, taking te high-quality teacher training programs from historically black colleges and universities to increase diversity. But I think that there's a big question in the minds of wonks like you and me about like, okay, but you know, to what extent and how's this going to work? I mean, I think, you know, 15, 20 years ago, we thought maybe Teach for America would be the answer or al alternate certification programs would be the answer. And it turns out people just don't stay in the profession, especially if they're not compensated well. You think about some of the really expensive cities in this country too, uh, teacher salaries don't stack up. So I think that that's something we really, really need to give a lot of thought to. And then the one other thing I would add that I wish this article would discuss more and I think we need to have a really important discussion about in this country is simply like, what is, um, you know, what's quality of life in the teaching profession? Because if, if schools can't afford, I, I always think of private schools, right? People... People who don't know private schools well think that private school teachers must be making a mint compared to their district school counterparts. And that is like almost universally untrue. <laughs> private school teachers almost always make less. But in many cases, there's something else that the school can offer them. Sometimes it's tuition remission for their own families, right? Something else that the school can offer them that makes it a quality of life decision. Um, and so all of these things like relieving student debt, quality of life, and then, like, that doesn't even get us to the conversation of not just how do you attract people, because we don't want just we don't want just like, you know, bodies in rooms and butts in seats. We want high quality professionals teaching our kids. And um, so as we seek to replenish the teacher workforce, I think we need to keep that top of mind. So articles really interesting. I have no answers, just like a lot of uh, opining on the issue. Uh, I'm sure you have some opinions, too, my friend. Now, you and I have had this conversation uh, a few times because we've talked about the shortage and what the pandemic has really uncovered about teacher, teacher stress, uh, trauma, what professional development we have for them when they come back. You know, there's one article, and I don't remember the name uh, of it, but it talked about a survey where at least 40 percent of the teachers who were interviewed said they're not sure they're going to return uh, this fall to the profession for a host of reasons. Uh, some of it primarily had to do with just health concerns, uh, but money and course was a factor. But this time with the billions of dollars that we've invested through two aid packages, possibly three by the time schools start, 
local school teachers and unions and associations and PTAs really should make sure they go to school board meetings or watch virtually and say with the just the avalanche of money coming into the school system, how much of this is going to go to teacher salaries? Now, we know from the recession uh, at the time that President Obama and Ari Duncan were in and they come up with a billion dollar plus plan to try to retain teachers to keep them in. There are definitely challenges of raising salaries or giving large bonuses, knowing that at some point, uh, excuse me, the money will run out. And so you can't plan for 30 years, knowing in fact that some people may leave in three. But we definitely should use this moment to think differently about how we compensate teachers. And maybe if you don't do it through a nine month salary, maybe you actually have the private sector or nonprofit organizations, for example, who work in uh, teachers who work in STEM. Uh, why not work for a chemical company for the summer doing an internship for maybe a month, receiving the same salary as a chemist, uh, which may be enough to get you through the summer, but there are unique ways to do it. As it relates to uh, Biden's plan for forgiving loans. If I may be two weeks behind, but I think he basically said he's not going to move forward with a major plan to basically forgive all debt. That's but right. one thing we can do is take lessons from what law school students do. I didn't know this until a decade ago that some of my friends who went to law school, they have enormous debt, uh, probably more than ed school teachers, but for sake of argument, it's a lot oh, of debt. Yeah. And some of them are actually working in the nonprofit sector under a cap in terms of annual fund, fund, uh, funding. And if they work in that profession for up to 10 years, uh, they forgive your loans or a big chunk of it. Some public school systems are doing the same thing, but I think we could take some lessons from the medical profession and from law school, because ed schools are professional schools, to see what we can do. Because I had not thought about the quality of life, because a $50,000 salary in Charlottesville and 50000 in Boston, oh, very forget different. Forget it's it. just very different. Uh, and I do think there's also a different change. There's a change in who goes into the profession. For a number of years, it was a family tradition, in many ways like policing. It was a tradition. Uh, my mom was a teacher. My dad was a teacher. And I'm going to be a teacher. One of the aha moments for me is when this was 2011. I met with 31 deans of schools of education across the country. And I said, by just, you know, just stand. How many of you uh, come from a home where your paternal or maternal grandparent or parents were, uh, were educators? Um, a teacher or principal. So of the 32, I believe 20 stood. If I said, if you're a mother or father, it was closer to 28. I said, if you're an educator, all 32 stood. I said, your children, two stood. And it became really uncomfortable because everyone looked around and then we began to unpack it. And some of them said, to be honest, I talked my kids out of going into teaaching. I still think it's a great profession. I think you can make a middle-class life, a middle-class standard of living like I had, but they're like, no. And so when the deans and those who are the purveyors of culture in profession are not encouraging their own children to stay, it just says a lot about the profession. And I'm, I'm glad that uh, you brought that up. Because like I said, there's a whole lot more we could talk about. It says a lot. Yeah, it says a lot about how we value the profession, let's say. Yep. And here's a very controversial statement. 
given the fact that the teaching profession is 80% female, would this be a different conversation if it was 70% female? Oh, that's not controversial. (laughs) 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 The answer is if the teaching profession were were heavily male, would we be in a different situation? I'm going to go with yes, Gerard. I don't know. Okay. Okay, you just put it out there. Okay. And I would love yeah. to see more males in the teaching profession. Shout out to my kids' school who suddenly, I don't know, they hired like four male teachers this year and they're all knocking it out of the park. It's great. Excellent. Well, I pivoted to you by saying, uh, what was it? What are we leaving behind or were we not moving? What was it? Yeah, what's what's moving, what's not moving, something like that. What do you have moving? So here is what's not moving and possibly could move. So my article is from the National Catholic Register, June 3rd, and it's from Michael Bendis. Title, The History Behind the Next Landmark Charter School Case. Uh, We have talked about charter schools a lot on this show, as we should. We've talked a lot about school vouchers, tax credits, education savings accounts. But it's worth putting into perspective that the fight for parental choice is not a 21st century battle. It's not even a 20th century battle. So in the article, uh, Michael mentions that in 1953, there were 16 Catholic students in Maine who were expelled from their public school. And what was their offense? Was it uh, cursing out the teacher? No. Was it hitting the teacher? No. Was it anything close? No. They were kicked out because they refused to read the King James Bible or the Protestant Bible, uh, given the fact that they were Catholic. And Bridget Donahue was one of the people who challenged her expulsion. And she argued that public school officials could not compel her to engage in Protestant religious uh, exercises when that's not her religion. Well, the main high court ruled against Bridget and uh, the others and basically said, that's not what's gonna happen. And here's a very interesting quote from 1853, quote, Large masses of foreign populations are among us, weak in the midst of our strength, it is asserted, and they must imbibe the liberal spirit of our laws and institutions. And in no way can this be accomplished except through the medium of public schools. Now, if this, if someone would say that in 2021, this would be a very different conversation. So needless to say, that did not happen, even though Maine, for a very long time, they have a tuitioning program. And they basically said, listen, because of the sparse population of this state, there are some areas that cannot afford to house a, let's say, a public high school. So if there's a private high school nearby, we will give you state money and you can use that to pay for your education. Well, that went on board until 1980 when Maine prohibited families from choosing schools that are deemed, quote unquote, sectarian, cold word for religious so that was 1980, and that's been moving forward. Well, you know, last year we had a chance to have uh, Miss Espinoza and an attorney from IJ actually come on board after the historic Supreme Court decision in Espinoza v. Montana Department of Revenue, and they held that another state, Montana, another M state, violated the free exercise clause when it prohibited students from choosing uh, to attend a religious school under the state's uh, school choice program, and we cheered. Well, guess what? There are families in Maine. Uh, I believe you're part of the First Circuit as well, being in Massachusetts. Yeah. There are families in Maine who said, hey, we want to do the same thing. Well, guess what? In October 2020, the first U.S. Circuit Court of Appeals in a decision, Carson v. Macon, actually upheld Maine's exclusion of sectarian schools. And why did they do it? 
Here's a rationale. Being married to a lawyer is very interesting how they will sparse every single word. Espinoza, its reason, prohibited exclusions uh, on the turn of a school's religious status or identity. Maine, by contrast, they turned to religious use, seeing, saying that we're not going to stop you from going to a religious school. That's your choice. But using the school to advance religion is going to be a problem. So a David and Amy Carson, uh, their parents of students in Maine and others, uh, are working with IJ, and they are suing the commissioner of education, really the, the, the commissioner of the Department of Education. And basically, they want to know whether or not, uh, and here's a question, does a state violate the religious clause or equal protection clause of the Constitution by prohibiting students participating in an otherwise generally available student aid program from choosing their aid to be used at a religious or sectarian institution? So that's been filed with the Supreme Court. We, again, could have another conversation with someone who took on Goliath, but we'll see. It's just the next uh, phase in a very long battle to bring true parental choice to the U.S. Yeah, I have to say, so Gerard, producer Jamie Gass and I were actually at that hearing at the First Circuit here in in Boston. Um, And we got to watch the amazing Tim Keller um, argue the case. And it was fascinating. It was fascinating. I've just, um, you know, uh, sort of shooting the breeze here. I'll say that the lawyer for Maine, I think that they had, t- they had done this, this, uh, case so many times that as Tim's making this very, you know, detailed argument, <laughs> she sort of, uh, it, it felt to me like what main side was coming down to, well, we always, we've always done it this way. And so we're going to keep doing it this way, sort of a thing. And then cut to, the Espinoza case, when the Supreme Court, you know, we were all sort of wondering where SCOTUS would go. And most folks, especially the IJ team, said they're probably not going to go wholesale. There'll be there'll be some little thing. Right. And but this is this is the little thing. Status versus use religious status versus religious use, leaving the door open, I think, for this case, which could once and for all. Um, settle the issue. I, I still don't understand whether that's going to completely knock down like Michigan's Blaine Amendment and Massachusetts's Blaine Amendment. I think maybe not. Um, I would hope it does. We'll have to have IJ on to tell us more about that. But yeah, it's a fascinating case. And just another indication, as I think you're alluding to, that you know we all cheered for Espinoza, but there's still a lot of work to do to make sure that um, families have access to the schools they want. I mean, especially in a place like Maine, where the whole reason for the town tuitioning program is that some yes. people live in such rural areas, they just, they don't even have a school to go to. So to then say like, you know, no, no, no. And now we're going to regulate where you get to go. You can't use that school down the street. <laughs> the one that's right next door, even though there's no public school available to you. So it's a fascinating case. It's one to watch. And I think, yes, we should absolutely have, uh, have somebody from the IJ team on to talk about it. Now, Gerard, um, coming up, We've had her on before, but I'm so happy to have her back again. Your friend and my friend, the great Nina Reese, is going to be here. And because, as I think you know, we are celebrating the 30th anniversary of charter schools this month, which is pretty exciting. Charter schools are all grown up. So coming up right after this. Learning Curve listeners, we we often say that we want to have guests back, and today we are doing just that. One of our favorites, Ms. Nina Reese, she is the president and CEO of the National Alliance for Public Charter Schools. 
Previously, Nina was Senior Vice President for Strategic Initiatives with Knowledge Universe. She worked for over 15 years in Washington, D.C., most recently as the Assistant Deputy Secretary for Innovation and Improvement at the U.S. Department of Education. Rees also served as Domestic Policy Advisor to the Vice President of the United States. Nina, we're so happy to have you back. Thanks for being with us today on The Learning Curve. Thank you so much for having me. Ah, well, okay. We have to start by talking about the fact that charter schools this very month are celebrating their 30th anniversary. I can remember talking about the 20th anniversary. I can remember <laughs> saying that I was affiliated <laughs> with charter schools that were turning 15 years old. I mean, this is this is huge. And under um, you know the stewardship of your wonderful organization and others, the charter school movement has has really not only grown substantially, but we know, um, according to studies and NAEP data, that charter school students, by and large, are doing really well. Meaning, you know, charter schools are providing really high performing options for families. So, talk to us just a little bit about this moment in time and and where charters are today and what you're thinking about during this 30th anniversary? Um, yeah, Kira, I mean, this is um, a pretty opportune time to have a discussion about charter schools, where we are and where we're headed. Uh, the 30th anniversary uh, of the movement was, in fact, last Friday, and uh, we owe a debt of gratitude to Ember Rashgat Young, who passed uh, a law that at the time, I don't realize if she realized, um, what power it would have in terms of opening access to so many families to find a school that fit their children's needs. Um, a lot of things have been said about why charters uh, took off and why we now have so many states with charter school laws, you know, 44 states, Washington, D.C., Puerto Rico, and uh, Guam have charter laws. Um, we have 3.3 million students in charter schools, seven, over 7,500 public charter schools around the country serving uh, a predominantly low-income and um, uh, diverse or um, a student population comprised of students of color. So uh, we have uh, made great progress at the same time. As you know, we've also demonstrated time and again that um, whatever you know, we're doing in our schools is having an impact on the academic achievement of the students we serve. Um, there's a recent um, study that came out of Harvard University looking at NAEP data. I love using NAEP data because when I was at the U.S. Department of Education, um, NAEP had just released a data set on charter schools, and I remember having to um, talk about it uh, because the unions, um, you know, were uh, uh, discussing how the test scores of students in charter schools were no different and in some cases worse than the performance of students in traditional schools. And I had to kind of explain, first of all, NAEP is not a great gauge uh, for making these types of comparisons, but even if it were, it's very difficult to look at one snapshot and draw too many conclusions because we don't know where the students who were assessed, were coming from, and how far behind they were academically compared to their counterparts in the public school system. So the fact that, fast forward, we now have uh, data from the NAEP analyzed by our friends at Harvard University that demonstrates that charter schools are in fact having an impact, especially for students of color, uh, is testament to the progress we've made over time. and. Um, and gives us confidence that what we're doing is not just opening the door for more students to access better schools that fit their needs, but that 
what's happening in our charter schools is also having an impact on their academic achievement and hopefully giving them an opportunity to move out of poverty. Yeah, I think it's really amazing. I'm sort of thinking of it in terms of, you know, charters are 30 years old, which means they're sort of reaching full adulthood, <laughs> or at least the movement is reaching full adulthood. And now we've got the, the sort of longer term data sets to prove the wonderful things that they are doing. And Nina, I also want to ask you, because aside from, you know, these these things that you've just discussed, academic performance and for whom, um, which are incredibly important and, and, you know, which really empower families with true choices because you're not choosing between two low performing options. Charters in so many cases are giving kids, um, you know, a, a higher performing option, although we should we should be very careful to say that uh, there are still a lot of high performing school districts as well. But charters in many cases also give kids a more distinctive option, meaning they're organized around a theme or they're trying new things. Can you talk a little bit about some of the neat innovations that we've seen come out of the charter sector? Like just here we are in the heels of the pandemic and I'm thinking a bit about like organizations like Rocket Ship or others that have just pioneered new approaches to teaching and learning. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, and I should have mentioned, I mean, I think, um, if anything, the pandemic demonstrated um, to a lot of families the importance of choice. And whereas before, charters were just the concept that was being discussed here and there. Um, I think, if anything, we now have a moment in time where more families have, have been exposed to what it's like to not have a choice or being stuck in a um, school system that is you know, uh, not opening or offering remote learning in a very yeah. choppy way. So we do have a moment in time right now uh, to make a stronger case for choice in charter schools. And if you look at enrollment data, this is early data, so we haven't scrubbed it to give you definitive answers, but every a major state saw uh, an increase in enrollment um, wow. in their charter schools. Certainly those states uh, that have a lot of charter schools saw, in, saw increases in enrollment. So from California to Colorado to North Carolina to Georgia to Florida, uh, Maine. So all of these states saw an increase in enrollment and we'll see if these enrollment numbers stay as high or continue to increase. But more families wanted options because, you know, I'm, I live in Fairfax County. Fairfax County not only didn't open until very recently, but as you recall in the news articles that came out, they also really struggled with offering remote learning uh, and online um, content to their students, which is a pretty affluent uh, community. So uh, I think that's an important kind of thing to, to highlight right now, and it's really onus is on us to continue pushing the envelope on the uniqueness of charter schools in making sure that they're fitting the needs of individual kids. Um, but they definitely, I mean, one of the key innovations that you can say across the board in most communities that have charters, um, they will all say the same thing, which is that, you know, that the entrepreneurial spirit of the leaders of the charter community um, is, has been instrumental in the quick course corrections they made when the pandemic hit. Um, also the fact that they have to deal with less bureaucracy uh, the fact that they're accountable to families and to an authorizer uh, and that they don't have to deal with the big centralized bureaucracy all help them adjust to the needs of families during a pandemic much faster. But having said that, there are also networks that 
had built-in advantages from the start because they were offering customized education um, and using technology creatively like RocketShip, which you mentioned, uh, they were able to definitely uh, do a lot more. And also in many instances, some of these schools made their course content available to the larger public school community so that any teacher, any family, any student could also access that content. So networks such as Uncommon, Success Academies, KIPP, Achievement First, they all made their course content available for others to use. And um, how many districts ended up using them, I don't know, but I think it's uh, it kind of goes to show also that the spirit uh, undergirding our community is not just about serving the needs of the students in our system, but also to making sure students outside of our system are also benefiting from some of the things that we're learning. I love that. And I think that it's something that too often these these are the kinds of things that aren't written about in, in the press quite often. I know that you and, and the great folks in your organization are writing about it, but I wish that we would read more uh, stories like this um, in, in the daily news. Nina, now I want to ask you something that's a little, I don't know, for me, it's a little more painful, but, um, you know, Pioneer Institute is based in Boston. And of course, they um, they published a book that I was able to author about Boston's charter school sector, which, as I don't have to tell you, is pretty high performing, has always been pretty consistently high performing, uh, but heavily capped, heavily regulated in the sense that we can't grow the number of charter school seats very easily, especially in Boston, not Massachusetts, but especially in Boston. And now there's, um, you know, not just in Boston, but in a lot of blue states, we've seen in recent years um, a real rise in um in, in unionization rates of some charter schools, but also, as I would put it, as the pressure to unionize. And um, for listeners who might not be really familiar with, with this age-old sort of debate, um, charter schools can, of course, charter school teachers have a right to unionize if they'd like, but traditionally many charter school teachers have chosen not to. Um, how are you and those that you work with thinking about you know, what it looks like, A, to have unionized charter schools, and um, what is, are you, do you have concerns about this, this ability to be nimble that you cite as such a boon to the charter sector? Do you have concerns that, that unionization and some of the other things that come with it uh, could be detrimental to the ability of charters to be as nimble as they need to be? That's a great question. So overall, the rates of teachers who are unionized in charter schools um, has not increased. Uh, it's, it remains at about 11%. We do a survey every year. And the last one is from a couple of years ago. We'll do one again this fall so we can see if there, the numbers have gone up in any demonstrable way. And that 11% is actually mostly attributable uh, to those states that don't allow teachers from being allow charter schools from getting out of collective bargaining union agreements. So states like Maryland, for instance, you have to be unionized regardless of whether you're in a charter or a traditional school. So uh, that 11% has remained constant. You have noticed, as you just mentioned, in, in some communities, an uptick in unionization efforts. Uh, and the recommendation we usually give to all of our charter leaders is one it's a very basic one, which is that you have to pay attention to your teachers. And at the end of the day, 
Um, most of the individuals who started a charter school were a teacher themselves at one point. Mm -hmm. They wanted to start something different, something new. Uh, but they're primarily instructional leaders. And as their schools have grown and as they've replicated, they may have lost uh, track of some of the management things you need to put in place in order to make sure that you're giving your teachers voice and that you're continuing to engage them in decision making. So very important for our sector to, to do this more consistently and to make sure that at the end of the day, you know, one of the key reasons why their schools are successful is because of the strength of their teacher workforce and the quality of the interactions between those teachers and their uh, students. Um, with that said, the unions have uh, been after the charter sector for quite some time. They go after the sector uh, legislatively. Uh, they have uh, tried to weaken us in the court of law. They are certainly going after us in the court of, court of public opinion. And then the last way they have um, targeted charter schools is by trying to actively unionize them in cities like Chicago and Los Angeles in particular. Uh, but we've also noticed instances in other places uh, where you don't have large um, charter management organizations that are you know, managing multiple sites uh, where you've seen an uptick in, in, in unionization and uh, noise within a school. Um, and I would kind of bucket these in two categories. I mean, in some instances, if the management of the school is not strong, you know, this is just something that can happen, certainly when there is a management shift in your school, as, you know, mm -hmm. you've seen in Boston. Uh, but in other places, I would say it is an active effort to introduce the concept in an otherwise healthy school. Um, and, you know, for us, it's important uh, to make sure our leaders are educated about um, about these early warning uh, signals um, that you know everyone should be aware of but also just to make sure as I said earlier that uh, our leaders are creating joyful uh, learning uh, settings for their teachers so that they uh, are supported fully well paid and supported throughout the process so that they don't feel the need for unionization. I mean, at the end of the day, what unionization will, will do at, at the beginning, and we have some charter schools that are unionized and they're doing just fine. The problem arises when you have, you're, you're bargaining with one unit that is in charge of large swaths of other types of schools, like you have in places like Chicago, where in those instances you are actually weakening very small schools that have been created to meet very unique needs and because of the one-size-fits-all kind of structure of the way unions bargain with districts you will impact the way you're interacting with your own teachers uh, and limiting your ability at the end of the day and the teacher's ability to expand the school day to expand the school year to offer differentiated pay and do all sorts of things that make your school a unique setting, both for the teachers and for the families that they serve. Nina, it's uh, Gerard, great to hear your voice and thanks for joining us. Oh yes, uh, good to hear your voice too, Gerard. So when we think about uh, KIPP charter schools, uh, they used a cadre of Ivy League graduates, graduates of public elite universities, elite liberal art colleges, HBCUs, 
to create um, successful charter schools, while others use networks to establish high caliber teacher preparation programs to get teachers ready to work in charter schools. Could you talk to us about uh, how teacher and school driven reforms and charters may hold a key for the future of K-12 education reform? Well, um, I think a lot of the innovations that are coming out of our sector through Relay um, and Success Academy teacher prep programs um, are things that will benefit the traditional system if the traditional system was interested in emulating these best practices and uh, models. Uh, I don't know if I'm answering your question. Um, uh, the way it was articulated, but I think that, um, uh, you know, our ability to attract the best and the brightest, to uh, keep them engaged in the classroom, to create a structure in which they can grow within the organization from a teacher to a master teacher and to management or running a school if they so wish. Uh, uh, the way we're do going about doing this in many of our networks um, should be you know, replicated in our traditional systems, and it would behoove our traditional districts to take some lessons from these networks. Uh, unfortunately, this is not happening as consistently, and I think one of the key reasons it's not happening consistently is because the turnover rates in a lot of these districts is just higher than it is in our systems where the leadership has stayed and has been around for a long time, and they're, they're not as susceptible to the political shifts in the um, school boards um, that come and go and the, you know, uh, leadership that they put in place. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think it's one of the reasons why we've been successful and uh, it's been a great place for a lot of, uh, you know, new teachers to, uh, to find good jobs, but also veteran teachers to find um, jobs that give them more ownership in the work um, and, I definitely think that one of the secret sauces to programs like Success Academies rests very much in the teacher training and um, professional development that's, uh, that leaders like Eva Moskowitz put, have put in place. Excellent. In fact, we've had her on our show as well. So let's go to the politics of, of charters. You know, so for decades now, charter schools have been very controversial uh, to some people. But in recent years, charter school politics in D.C. and the states have become even more complicated uh, and contentious. Could you discuss where the right left charter school coalition stand and what needs to be done to bridge uh, political divisions? Um, you know, that coalition still exists at the federal level. I don't know enough about what's happening in different states, but you know, to the extent um, people think of this issue as an issue that's no longer as attractive to um, you know progressives, they're probably talking in those uh, you know legislatures where you know both the center of both parties is fraying, um, but. You know, charter schools were born really because those who were advocate of choice, primarily on the right, came together with those on the left who wanted to um, make sure the public schools were performing better. And they came up with a compromise in which you were attaching accountability, instilling a culture that attracted families based on choice in service to really um, reforming and upgrading the quality of public education. So I still think that that 
uh, coalition exists, but unfortunately the news media and Twitter certainly doesn't help, focuses a lot more on the differences um, that exist and on the on the discussions and the differences of opinion really out there. I'm not undermining the political pressures that charters are under in some of our states, but in general, though, I think that there is more in common between Republicans and Democrats when it comes to their embrace of charter schools than there are when you look at other issues. Um, so, but it's definitely one of those things that we should pay more attention to. And I would say that the key reason why, to some extent, some of our members are no longer as staunch of a supporter like Elizabeth Warren, since we were talking about Massachusetts, has a lot to do with their connection to um, the teachers' unions and those forces that are influencing the establishment. And I would also just say, you know, look, when we were first born, everyone loved us. We only had a few charter schools here and there. But as we have grown and as we have had more of an impact on student achievement and certainly demonstrated that we can do a good job with the same amount of money and sometimes less money, that has definitely um, put uh, the establishment on its heels, so to speak. And so one of the reasons why people are reacting the way they're reacting is actually because of our success. Uh, but it's hard to get people who are used to being loved to really uh, you know, appreciate the fact that the, the, the response we're getting from school districts and the unions is, to some extent, the byproduct of our success. And those are really good points, particularly the part where you said, you know, there's actually a coalition, uh, maybe more so at the federal level, but you're right, the media would make it seem as if we just can't find anyone from the left or, or the right to get into a room and have a conversation when you and I both know it's not true. In fact, uh, in the last year, I've had conversations uh, mostly offline with people on the left, my being on the right, just about some of the historical uh, ways, you know, 10, 15, 20 years ago, they were able to cross the political divide, also some of the racial and political divides. So thanks for reminding us that uh, there's still some things to play. So here's a, a, another I, question. Let me just, yeah. Go ahead. Say, I mean, very quickly, I, 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 with, with that said, I do think that the sector does need to pay a lot more attention to the leaders, um, the political leaders, whether they're at a city level, a state legislature, Congress. I mean, ultimately, we are in a political medium. And one of the things that we need to do much more consistently, whether we are a parent sending our kids to a charter school or a school leader running a charter school, uh, an advocate that is in favor of charter schools, we need to make sure that those who are who we're putting into office know what a charter school is, appreciate what it stands for, and also that they understand that there is going to be a consequence if these politicians are not responsive to the needs of the families in charter schools. I think that is one area where our sector needs to pay a lot more attention to. We shouldn't just wait until something bad happens to flex our muscles. I think we need to be far more vigilant in selling the concept because a lot of people, as you know, still don't know what it is and why it's such an important reform to take care of. Great point. Here's a question about teacher diversity. It's a question that gains a lot of attention in the traditional public school sector, same with magnet schools, but we also see uh, the conversation taking place in the charter school world. What would you, you know, what would you say to those who are saying, what are the efforts 
to address teacher diversity, what charter school is doing, and um, what role can we play in the policy perspective, particularly since you mentioned policy politicians, to try to address teacher diversity? Well, studies um, and research and surveys all show that the, the teacher population in charters is more diverse than that of um, the traditional system, simply because we also have more schools in um, inner cities and places that attract a more diverse um, teacher population. So, uh, so that is something we should be very proud of. And some of it has to do with the leadership of the schools and the types of schools that we're running. So to the extent um, they, um, you know, the leadership is about uh, attracting black leaders and giving um, uh, families of color more agency and say in um, decision-making. I mean, it goes without saying that you're likely going to attract people who believe in um, empowerment more, and those people are going to be people of color. Certainly, your, our schools are also kind of ensconced in inner city communities, so you're naturally going to attract people from that community to teach in your school. So we should be very proud of that. And there are, again, some lessons that we can uh, teach the larger education sector. Um, but at the end of the day, one of the things we need to be far more vigilant as, a, as an education community and sector is just the need to expose more people to education and attracting more teachers uh, to the field of teaching because um, certainly now that the economy is picking back up, there's always a liability in losing um, talent to other sectors. And that's where um, the flexibility and freedoms that charter leaders have come into play. So to the extent we are able to offer higher salaries and um, offer greater incentives for uh, people to come and teach in our schools, those things make our community more attractive to people who might want to go into other sectors that pay better and offer um, you know more um, flexibility in, in, in the work and in the quality of life. So, A number of people who will listen to this will be shocked to know that in fact yes there are charter schools who pay a higher salary and people also sometimes overlook the economic spillover effects in a good way uh, that building a charter school in a community has on local businesses, on contractors, just a number of areas. So, Nina, first of all, thank you for your leadership uh, in this movement, not just in the charter school movement, but really in the education movement writ large. Uh, if you had a chance to work in the private sector and government uh, and in the nonprofit sector. And so when people start to look for uh, leaders who've had a chance to really make an impact, you're definitely one of the ones that we should discuss. So keep up the good work and uh, let us know what we can do on our end to uh, be supportive of what you do. Thank you so much. Thank you, Nina. Sure, thank you. So Kara, my tweet of the week comes from Jason Riley, someone who joined us in November of 2020. And this is about a review of his new book, Maverick, a biography of Thomas Sowell. And the person who reviewed it said that uh, Thomas Sowell in raising the question, is he one of America's most important thinkers of our time? And he says, Maverick is an outstanding intellectual biography 
of a prolific African-American economist. I uh, pre-ordered the book, uh, look forward to reading it. Uh, the one thing I would say differently is I just believe he's a very prolific economist. But thank you. And Jason, look forward to reading your book. Yeah, I'm really looking forward to it, too. And I know, you know, Thomas Sowell read a lot of his work in graduate school, absolutely a prolific economist, and um, but and also not an uncontroversial figure in some ways. And um, fascinating. I can't I can't wait to hear what Jason has to say. I just thought about it. You are a graduate of the University of Chicago, where he uh, I am pursued either his master's or his Ph.D., I can't economics. remember which one I pursued there. You know, I'm just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> it feels like so long ago. Love that place, though. Miss it very much. Um, Gerard, next week, we are going to be speaking with Paul Reed. He is the co-author with William Manchester of the New York Times bestselling biography of Winston Churchill, The Last Lion, Defender of the Realm. So we get to dig back into history. One of the cool things we get to do, a little bit of everything here on The Learning Curve. Until then, Gerard, I am going to go like find a sprinkler to run in, <laughs> go take my kids and get some ice cream. Um, and uh, I hope that you all have a wonderful uh, week celebrating the 30th anniversary of charter schools. And for those who are listening this Thursday, uh, the 10th of this month, between 3.15 p.m. and 4.45 p.m., I am hosting a live Zoom uh, conversation with some of the founding members of the charter school movement. You can go to uh, Institute for Advanced Studies of Culture webpage and look that up. And this is just another way of celebrating some members of the founding Why generation. Why am I who just getting my invite now? Oh, I sent... Uh, for real? You know what? I, you're right. I did not copy All you right, to... Just another example. <laughs> wow, you're right. It sounds great, Gerard. I will absolutely be there. <laughs> Got it. <laughs> all right. Now, we'll all be looking forward to it. Say again, date and time. It is June 10th, Thursday, between 3.15 uh, p.m. and 3.45 p.m. I'm going to have on Linda Brown, of course, from Massachusetts. Uh, Emory Young, author of the first charter school law from Minnesota. I'm going to have Jim from the National Charter School Institute, uh, Howard Fuller from Milwaukee, uh, amongst other things, uh, and Yvonne, who opened up the next uh, next century charter school um, in the San Fernando Valley back in the early 1990s, one of the first charter schools in California. So. Um, should be good. And I think it'll be great for people in their 20s, 30s, even 40s uh, to hear from people who were not too much older than them when they decided to do something radically different called introducing a charter law. Very cool. Looking forward to it. Okay. Excellent. Take care. Take care.